Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's talk about inflation. Mike Holland, chairman and uh, chairman of Holland and Company, joins us uh, this morning to do just that and uh, to expand the conversation from there. Uh, Mike, good to speak to you. Thanks for joining us here on Bloomberg uh, TV. What do you think uh, central bank policy can do against inflation right now? Because you say ahead of our conversation in your notes, you say there's too much money chasing too few goods. And so that makes me realize that the taper can't do much about the too few goods, but it can do something about the too much money. So what kind of downward pressure can the Fed bring to bear on inflation? given some of it is driven by those supply chain issues? And I, I, such an in, in, important question, and I'm not sure that Jerome Powell, if he were sitting with you right now, could answer that because he has all of these tools which he employed brilliantly uh, 15, 18, 20 months ago. Uh, and as, as uh, I started out uh, one of the epic uh, salvage of the U.S. economy missions um, uh, that any Fed president has, has ever done, Fed head has ever done. Right now, uh, they are in a, in a period where they are losing a little bit of confidence in addition to their persistence with that word transitory on inflation. Uh, a couple of the Fed presidents, uh, regional presidents, have, have had to resign because of claims of um, uh, some insight or whatever. But I think the, uh, the luster is a little bit off the Fed. I think that uh, Powell has, has shown that he can do well in trying circumstances. Uh, right now, I think it's pretty well inbred in the population, as uh, Kaylee was just saying, that uh, we, we have inflation, particularly the wage price spiral kind of inflation from the 70s, that is so uh, inimical mm-hmm. to, uh, to, a, to a good economy. So he's yeah. got his job cut out for him. I don't think he would be able to answer the questions. What will he do? Because they have lots of tools, some of which aren't going to work. Well, and depending on what tools they use, how high would you put the odds of a policy mistake, Mike? Oh, Kaylee, that's a... Uh, I don't even want to talk about it because uh, <laughs> with, with the rates where they are now, which are at historic levels, historically bad levels for the Fed, uh, they don't have much room to do anything with the, the supply of money, however, which is rarely talked about by the people who come on the show and talk about what the Fed can do. And they're talking about rate hikes and uh, so on. I, I think it's the supply of money, which has been it's too, too, too uh, few goods uh, chased by a lot of money uh, is, is what's causing this. And the wage price spiral is going to persist long after the services and, and uh uh, other kinds of inflation, commodity inflation, is already looking better. I think uh, the the the, uh, the virus is, is as of this morning uh, officially uh, being retired by the markets. I think inflation is is the, is the big bogey uh, over mm. the next uh, six to twelve to eighteen months. Mike, what do you think would be the bigger event for the markets when the Fed ultimately does lift off and we get that first rate hike, or when QT begins and we actually start rolling off that balance sheet? Well, between the two, uh, Kelly, the, the balance sheet is, is, is the key. It's, it's the, the amount of money going into the system. But they're both important because the, the market is, is determined in, to a great deal by psychology. Psychology has been waning recently with regard to favoritism toward the Fed. So I think that they have to do smart things. But I think that in the end of the day, it's, it's the supply of money, which will be the key. 
the proverbial punch bowl as it was, Mike. I mean, for me, I, I have one question for you. Are bonds dead? I mean, if one more person tells me to get short duration, move up in quality, uh, you know, maintain ample liquidity, I may just blow my brains out. You know, for me, what serves the store as a store of value in this environment? Well, Damien, I think uh, beware, beware the bond market. It's almost uh, baked into the, the cake, uh, the Christmas cake here, that you can lose money in a, in a meaningful way over the next 12 months in terms of if interest rates move up. I should say when interest rates move up. Uh, the Fed has to move interest rates up. Uh, the bond market, unless we go into a serious recession caused by, in part, rates going up, uh, the bond market is going to uh, have a very you know negative reaction. So you're going to lose money. Just a question of how much. And so, and so then what about the risk of a policy error, Mike? I mean, you know, I mean, do you think the Fed can actually taper without causing a tantrum this time around? I think, Damien, that, the, that Jerome Powell is very savvy. I think he watches the markets. I think he'll do his best to avoid that. Uh, but I think, unfortunately for us as investors and as citizens, uh, the possibility of a, of a mistake is, is relatively high. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike Holland of Holland Merry Company. Christmas on that note. Appreciate your yes. Happy holidays to you, and thank you for joining us on a holiday week. Your time is even more valuable for that reason. Thank you for the insight. Matt Lazzetti, chief U.S. economist at Deutsche Bank, joining us now. He's going to have smarter things to say about all of this. What do you read into these numbers, Matt? What can you take away from them that is going to be useful as we think about the trajectory? we're on into next year. Is the consumer going to hold up? Is this going to be an industrial story next year? Give us your take. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I guess I'd focus on two things from this morning's data. One has to be inflation. It's been the story of 2021. It'll remain the story of 2022. And that core PCE data up 0.5% yeah. month on month was, was right in line with our expectations. But we see that the highest year over year rate since the late 1980s. Uh, so that is in line with expectations, but just putting it into context, how high inflation is in the, at the moment and why the Fed will be tightening policy next year. The second, I think, is consumer spending. And, and there we saw real consumer spending flat month on month below expectations. And really, this is before Omicron hits. It's before the child tax credit may, may hit incomes uh, in January if that's not renewed. And so we do see a consumer that, that uh, has looked a little bit more fragile. fragile. Consumer sentiment has dipped mm -hmm. late in the year. And so I think from a, a growth perspective, that does raise at least some of the downside risks on the consumer. Yeah, I mean, my God, I mean, look at the core rate, 4.7%. That's a bit of a surprise. I mean, for me, you know, that's the highest since 1982. I mean, Matt, you know, what's your position on inflation as we get into the new year? I mean, should we expect, you know, inflation as many are calling for, and certainly as the markets are pricing in, to accelerate a little bit and then come off in the second half of the year? What do you think there? Sure. So I think in the near term, it's going to get worse. Um, we do have, we know some from some core goods items, used cars, new vehicles, we're probably going to see some upward pressure there in the near term. I think in addition to that, housing uh, costs in terms of rent and OER are going to be continue to pick up. So in the near term, it does get worse, I think. We are uh, of a perspective that it will come down later next year, uh, but that'll remain very elevated. So we have core PC inflation at around 2.7, 2.8% at the end of next year. That's still 70, 80 basis points above the Fed's target. And it's exactly the reason that we expect them to raise rates at least three times next year. Yeah, Matthew, and I heard you hint at it, you know, housing prices and rents, you know, that and the supply bottlenecks due to the, uh, due to the Omicron variant. I mean, like, what are your thoughts on those? I mean, like, you know, those are the, obviously the two big factors that are going to drive inflation in the U.S. come the new year. You know, what do you think? 
Sure. I, I think the key uh, story, and as I, I saw you mentioned earlier, uh, is about the labor market and, mm -hmm. and how COVID tends to impact that. Uh, what we've seen during the Delta wave and previous waves uh, is it tends to shrink the labor force. You tend to see labor force participation decline. It tends to do that particularly for uh, those that are impacted by childcare, whether it's schooling uh, or childcare needs for, for younger children. And so I think in the next few months, prob probably for the first half of this year, the labor force remains constrained. Uh, that means the labor market tends will tend to look tight. Wages will continue to accelerate. Uh, and that'll be a tight labor market that, that, that is feeding into inflationary pressures. I think as we get further out, uh, I'm optimistic that labor force will come back. If you look at prime age participation, it rose 90 basis points this year. And actually relative to last cycle looks re relatively good compared to where it was uh, last cycle, uh, given the unemployment rate. So I'm optimistic that labor force will rise in the second half of next year and further out. But in the near term, it's likely to remain constrained given Omicron and the, and the pandemic. Well, and Matt, I wonder how the buildup of savings plays in here as well, because obviously the fact that the consumer has a pretty strong balance sheet has allowed spending to continue to keep pace, even as incomes don't necessarily with inflation and that wage growth is still when adjusted for inflation, uh, not where, you know, it might need to be in order for consumption to be that strong otherwise. As the consumer starts to draw it down on those savings, which we're already seeing, is it going to take a complete removal of that buffer to drive people back into the labor force? Sure, um, so I, I think it's a, a very key question. We have excess savings at around $2.4 trillion. Uh, that's how much has been built up, accumulated since the pandemic hit. But I think the, the key point there is that that is heavily skewed towards the upper part of the income distribution uh, and older older age households. And so you have a large portion of the, the, the population of the income distribution that does not have excess savings that have been, been built up. And therefore, I don't think that that is a, a key constraining force on them coming back into the labor force. I think what, what it does tell us is there are a number of factors that do tell you that the, the consumer does have a strong balance sheet. Excess savings is one of them. Debt to income ratios have fallen. Debt service ratios are, are quite low. Net worth is is really elevated, but households are dealing with a number of shocks in the near term. COVID yeah. obviously is is one uh, sentiment has been hit on that, and income will be hit uh, if we don't have the child uh, tax credit renewed next year. Matt, I'm so glad you brought that up because, of course, the reason we talk about such a high savings rate is because we saw unprecedented fiscal stimulus that padded consumers' wallets. When we think about Build Back Better and that child tax credit specifically, is that if that doesn't happen, what are the growth implications of that? Sure. So we assume that it will be renewed next year. Uh, and if it were not renewed, that that would reduce our growth forecast by 30 to 50 basis points. So we would go okay. from 3.6% growth next year to something closer to 3% growth. It's material. It's particularly material for the consumer. But in my mind, it's not something that moves us from, you know, uh, very, very high growth to well above trend to something that sees the labor market begin to contract. So I don't think it has as big of implications for the, the Fed, Fed policy, the Fed story. They will still be tightening policy. Yep. The labor market should continue to improve. But it is a material impact on the growth outlook for next year. Matt, you're talking about three, possibly four rate hikes next year from the Fed. Recessions are normally caused by the Fed raising rates. It's either higher rates or higher energy prices. To a certain extent, we could have both next year. How would you handicap the risk of a recession in the United States 2022, 2023? So I, I think you have very interesting divergences right now between recession indicators. There's, there's a few consumer indicators that we focus on closely. 
uh, they look at either at the gaps between expectations and current conditions or uh, the gaps between current conditions and the different surveys. And those look like recession risks are very elevated, call it 50% over the next year. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, if you look at yield curve metrics, yes, they have flattened, but they remain pretty steep and are suggesting recession risks are pretty muted at around 20%. 20%. I think you nailed it that the biggest risk here is the Fed, uh, that the Fed has to respond more aggressively to inflation uh, and that that does trigger the next downturn. That is not our base case. We think that they raise rates, as you mentioned, three to four times, that they begin to unwind the balance sheet and that inflation comes down as supply bottlenecks begin to work themselves out. But the key risk here is uh, maybe the supply bottlenecks do not work themselves out or inflation expectations pick up or a wage price spiral begins to uh, unanchor inflation and that becomes self-fulfilling in many ways and that the Fed has to move more aggressively. It's a very difficult, different environment than where we were pre-COVID where inflation was quite low when the Fed started to raise rates and the labor market still had some room to tighten. Today, inflation is well above target. The unemployment rate is almost at the Fed's view of NARU, the long run level. And so there is a great risk, I think, that they have to move more aggressively and that that does raise recession risks, probably not in 2022, but as we look out into 2023 and 2024. Matt, I just have to pick up a little bit on what Kaylee was alluding to earlier. You know, we had City Global Chief Economist Nathan Sheets on yesterday, and he talked about the immense fiscal hurdle that the U.S. is facing in the first half of this year. I mean, $2.7 trillion of fiscal uh, stimulus last year. You know, how is this economy going to manage through without any of that? That's equivalent, by the way, as you well are aware, 13 percent of GDP. So that's a pretty big number that's not coming anytime soon. Absolutely. So, so I think what th these traditional fiscal impulse measures miss is that a lot of the, the stimulus that we had last year was saved. We noted about the $2.4 trillion of excess savings that households have. There's a couple hundred billion dollars that state and local governments have not spent yet. And so I think those typical imp imp fiscal imp impulse measures of very elevated last year uh, and very negative over the next year do overstate the case. I do think that there's going to be a lot more smoothing in the fiscal impulse, given that a lot of it was saved. But it does highlight the challenge. We, we've had an economy uh, since COVID hit that has been you know, very significantly supported by massive fiscal stimulus and a Fed policy that has been incredibly accommodative. Mm -hmm. 2022, we'll see a reversal of both of those things. We think that the economy can you know, weather that and still see growth well above trend, but it is an open question. And, I, and just to go back to the last point, the key question I think for, for growth and the outlook remains, can the Fed actually land this this uh you know land land this plane in a soft landing way mm -hmm. an environment where inflation is uh as we saw this morning at the highest level since the 1980s great stuff matt luzetti of deutsche bank thank you so much for your insight appreciate it uh thank you for joining us and Jane Foley joining us now. She's the head of FX strategy at Rabobank. Got to ask the big question, Jane, uh, as we come out of 2021 into 2022, does this incredible tailwind that we've seen for the dollar this year continue into next year? I think it can certainly continue into the, the initial few months and maybe wait until the Fed gets going with that uh, interest rate hiking uh, cycle. But, you know, we've got to remember that there's an awful lot of good news priced into the U.S. dollar. And the market's been becoming longer and longer of the, the U.S. dollar in, in the last few months since that that trend really did get underway in, in, in June. And, of course, June was that FOMC where the, the prospect of an interest rate hike in 2022 was initially put on the table. And, and since then, the market's become more and more optimistic about the possibilities of interest 
interest rate hiking. And, and so there is a lot of good news in the price. I think that's why we're sort of glued to that 113 handle in, in euro dollar right now. I think we need this consolidation. I think perhaps we need some pullbacks um, b- before the market can can really make a decision about, you know, do I really want to build on those long uh, dollar positions more? You know, what on earth can happen in order to, to make me do that? So um, I think we can have further to go. I'm not so sure if, if, if the, 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 the movement up in the dollar can, can last the full year, though. Do we understand the risks around European growth at this stage? Um, one of the big stories that, that I think has kind of flown under the radar a little bit uh, as we've watched what has happened with um, the, the Fed, what's been happening with the, the fiscal programmes in the United States and, of course, Omicron, has been this gas crisis in Europe. Energy prices are super high all the way across the continent. They're coming down a little bit as we see the arrival of some LNG tankers from the United States. But nevertheless, they remain very, very high. We've got very little storage. We could potentially be in the same situation next year. And rather than this being an inflation threat, Jane, could this be a growth threat for Europe? Are we underestimating the impact that this could have? Yeah, I think you've said it, Guy. I think this is a growth threat. And, and in many respects, it really doesn't endorse the, the very cautious stance of, of Lagarde at the ECB. You know, she has uh, continuing to remain uh, dovish, continuing with this uh, very supportive monetary uh, policies. And and I think this is one reason, you know, why she's, you know, justified in, in doing this. And I think, um, you know, we've already heard uh, reports, um, small businesses, uh, uh, bigger businesses um, really having to, to shutter because of the additional costs that these energy prices bring. But also, it's going to be a significant headwind to, to consumers too. And I think that risk is only going to be highlighted, you know, during the winter months. Now, some countries, Spain comes to mind, have taken some action to reduce the, 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 the bills um, on for, for consumers, not, of course, uh, for industry. Um, and, and that will help. But this is certainly a significant headwind for, uh, for, for business, business and consumers in, in the region. Good morning, Jane. I had a lovely chat with your colleague Christian Lawrence in Cross Asset Strategy yesterday, and one area of disconnect was China, an area that he tends to avoid at all costs. What are your views on the renminbi in 2022? Well, you know, if we look at the Chinese economy, we know it's slowing. We, we know that there are there are headwinds there, and it's it's fairly normal in, a, in if we had a floating uh, uh, exchange rate to, to see a currency weaken. Um, now, I think one of the constraints uh, for for China in 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 terms of the exchange rate was that the very very strong PPI inflation numbers that we were getting at, but they've appeared to started to moderate, and I think this is really the key because if we do get you know some indication that inflationary pressures are moderating in, in China, I think at that point, the authorities could be more comfortable in allowing the exchange rate or the, the Chinese renminbi uh, to, to weaken. So uh, I think we are probably going to uh, see certainly more talk of interest rate cuts if we don't see uh, more interest rate cuts in, in, in the next few months. And, and I think that too uh, could be associated more with more expectation that they will allow the renminbi to, to slip uh, against the US dollar. Well, Jane, one area that is devoid of surprise is Turkey. The lira, which had plummeted through 11 to 10 earlier today, is now back through 11. I mean, these are big figure moves in the Turkish lira. Clearly, it's not foreigners participating. It's all driven by locals. What are your thoughts on the lira come the new year? You know, there was a very interesting report in the FT this morning making calculations about the level of foreign exchange reserves. Um, And their calculation was that these had dropped by 
billions in a couple of days at the start of this week. And and and, and the implication was was that we had this, this speech from uh, President Erdogan um, in the course of the week. We had this, if you like, this backdoor interest rate hike as far as retail investors uh, were concerned. Uh, and the implication was is that we had intervention or they made intervention to, to really exaggerate the move. Of course, liquidity conditions are very, very thin because of the Christmas period too. And, and so, you know, the, the takeaway from that is that the intervention was done at a time which could make Erdogan look good, make his measures look good. And, and actually, you know, that takeaway really does undermine the credibility of the, the, the Turkish authorities even further. And I, and I, you know, do think that unless we do get an interest rate hike, that the majority of investors, institutional investors, at least and speculators, will continue to think that the Turkish lira remains, you know, very vulnerable. Jane, um, Vladimir Putin this morning in his press conference talking about Turkey, talking about the impact that policy there is having, saying he doesn't want to repeat it uh, in Russia, talking about the need, therefore, for rate hikes. Um, that largely seems priced at the moment that um, Nabulina is going to potentially have to do more. But the real threat, it strikes me, for the ruble is, is actually geopolitical and what is happening around sanctions, what's happening uh, on the Ukrainian border. What's currently priced there? do you think, in terms of that geopolitical risk? Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of interesting topics that you just brought up, Guy, and, and I think the first thing to say is that the credibility of, of the Russian Central Bank, you know, cannot in any way be compared to, to Turkey. Um, the Russian Central Bank has a huge amount of, of credibility. So, you know, that is one thing, and she's done a, a, an extremely good job there in, in these last few years. Um, but the other thing I think that's, you know, worth pointing out with respect to the, 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 the Russian ruble is that although you, we, we're talking so much um, over in the West about Ukraine, about the geopolitical risks, about the tensions uh, between Russia and, and the US or Russia and, and, and NATO, Russia and, and, and Europe, for instance. Actually, if we look at the ruble, it, it does seem to be really more driven by the oil price. Um, so mm. from, from that point of view, we haven't had yep. an awful lot of geopolitical impact in, in there yet. Now, clearly, I think if we were to have, you know, an increase in the tensions over Ukraine, that might change. But for the time being, that's not been or that is not a, a driving factor. All right, Jane Foley of Rabobank, always great to get your insight. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy holidays to you and yours. Let's bring in Jody Guest, Vice Chair at Emory University Rollins School of Public Health, Department of Epidemiology. Jody, as we talk about all of these different forces at work, what in your mind is the most critical to focus on right now? Well, I think getting everyone boosted, and if you've not yet gotten vaccinated, we certainly want everyone to get to a vaccine, and we want you to get one with an mRNA series. And then if you've been vaccinated in your six months after that vaccination, we really do want to see people get boosted. We also want to layer a few other things on that, though, because Omicron is so incredibly transmissible. Wearing a mask, a very good mask when you're out in public is incredibly important, as is making sure that you're in ventilated spaces. And I don't think we've been talking enough about testing, although I do think that that conversation has been increasing. But knowing when to test and which kind of test to use is very important. OK, so let's just talk a little bit about that. Paxlovir is this new drug that we have, this new antiviral that we have from uh, from Pfizer. You need to take it early. Therefore, you need to test in order to know when to take it. How should we be sequencing testing? Over here in the UK, we have a, a, 
many, many, many lateral flow tests. I, I think I've got a box at home of kind of 20 or 30 of them. They give them out at schools. So you mm -hmm. use the lateral flow. If you get a positive, then you go and get a, a, a PCR test, which allows the government as well to sequence. It allows reporting around that. So how should we be thinking about testing and how that fits in with using these antivirals? Well, I think right now with Omicron spread across the United States and everyone getting ready to gather for holidays, we really want to be talking about how to use a rapid antigen test at home and recognize what it does and what it doesn't do. It does not give you free reign for a week if you've had one negative rapid antigen, but it does make you feel comfortable that you're not going to be infectious if you're getting together with dinner with someone in their home. And so it, you know, that window of time that you can use in a rapid antigen is appropriate for holiday gatherings if you test before you go. But if you're going to get together with friends the next day, you need another test. And so um, access to rapid antigens and using them at home appropriately is not something we've done very well in the United States. And we need to work on that. In terms of using antivirals then, how mm -hmm. should they slot in? You, you, this, this new drug, Paxlovid, you, you need to take it within the first, I don't know, two, three, four, five days of being, right. uh, of being hit with Omicron. So, so how, how do we make sure that we use this properly? It's an expensive, it's an expensive drug. What is it, $600, $700 for a, for a course? How do we make sure that we're spending that money effectively? I think I saw that it's going to be maybe $530 in the United States, but it's got a window as well. And you're right. You need to know that you have COVID in order to get this. And so you, the best use of this new drug series is going to be to use it in the first three to five days of testing positive or onset of symptoms. And so um, we also want to be using it. it. It works the best for people who are at at risk for severe complications for COVID-19. So that's a group that already, I hope, would have a high sensitivity to wanting to test. So that's um, folks who are living with underlying conditions or are, are older age or have things like diabetes and obesity and, and things that we know complicate a course of COVID-19. That's really where we're gonna see Plexovid work the best and where we see the best data so far. Jody, we spend so much time uh, harping on the bad news related to the coronavirus, but there has been some incredible progress on the medical front. I mean, most specifically, we, you know, we mentioned the Pfizer oral pill, but also the, you know, the U.S. Army Walter Reed Institute also announced yesterday that, you know, they've made some progress in terms of a virus that not only affects, you know, uh, COVID, but also any SARS sort of related um, um, disease. My question for you is what has you, what, what advancements in epidemiology have you most excited as we turn to 2022? Well, I think, um, you know, it's been a long two years, but what we've seen is um, people are paying attention to public health and um, we don't normally lead with a lot of conversations about people even knowing what epidemiologists are. So that has definitely changed. But the passion of our students and what they're seeing as they as they learn about public health during this pandemic, I think is really going to change the way public health moves forward. We're really focusing on good science communication and talking about inequities. COVID-19 has consistently taken advantage of inequities in healthcare and access. And, and we need to be talking about that in order to be willing to do something about it. And so I think that that is one of the silver linings of COVID-19 is making us talk about it and making us face it. 
Jody, you know, I've also heard that Omicron doubles the risk of being uh, infected on a plane. You know, a lot of people are traveling this holiday season on myself. I mean, well, Tom Keene's not sending the private jet to come pick me up, so I'll be on a plane um, with a lot of other people on, on Saturday. You know, for me, you know, how concerned should travelers be this holiday season? Well, Omicron is much more transmissible than we saw with Delta, and we thought Delta was a whammy. Um, Omicron, when it, when it is in a space, everyone there is much more likely to get it than we've seen with other variants. And, and airplanes have been a very safe way to travel based on the way that air circulates in, in airplanes. We've not seen a lot of transmission from the actual airplane. It's more what you're doing to get onto that plane that has been a risk for people. And so, uh, you know, we're just working with something that's so much more transmissible now. Every place that you are with other other people is a bigger risk than it was even with Delta. A lot of factors that people are calculating into the equation when deciding what to do this holiday season. Thank you so much to Dr. Jody Guest of Emory University and happy holidays to you and yours. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.